Previously on Survived by One, Tom Odell went through a downward spiral of depression, desperation, and dejection. Survived by One, The Life and Mind of a Family Mass Murderer by Robert E. Hanlon with Thomas V. Odell. Episode 10. Murder, November 8th, 1985. When Carolyn Odell left her house that morning to fulfill her community duties at the elementary school and run a few errands, she grabbed her jacket on her way out the door. It had been unseasonably warm for Southern Illinois, but it was still November, two weeks from Thanksgiving, and it was like Carolyn to be prepared, should the weather turn cold. As usual, Bob Odell worked the night shift and woke up after his wife and three children were gone. He put on a t-shirt and blue jeans and went to the kitchen to fix himself some breakfast. The day before the crime, I was feeling like I had nowhere to go and nobody to turn to for help. I had been told to stay away from all family members as they wanted nothing to do with me. All my life growing up when something bad would happen to me, like getting beaten, or having to go without a meal, or having something taken away or destroyed, I would often think, I wish they were dead. But I'd never sat down and planned it out, or wanted to be the cause of their death. I just wanted it to happen. And this was no exception to the rule of wanting them all dead. I wanted to be rid of the connection, the pull, the hold that I always felt they had on me. They never let me grow in my own direction because I was never really allowed to do very much growing up unless I was sneaky about it or lied about it afterwards. So that became the standard style of interaction with my parents. But I never actually wanted them dead and I never actually wanted to be the cause of their death. It was just my anger boiling up and me thinking mad, that's all. On the last day of her life, Carolyn presumed that her son Tom would be gone the next day. She didn't know where he was going to go because he didn't know where he was going to go. And he probably wouldn't tell her if he did. This family was through with him. He was no longer welcome at his grandmother's house. Tom and his father had yet another argument the day before, and Bob had finally drawn the line. He had ordered Tom to be out of the house by 4 p.m and said he would be taking the boy's clothes with him when he left for work on Friday. According to Carolyn's best friend, Yvonne Sexton, both Carolyn and Bob hoped that kicking Tom out of the house would force him to get his act together. Carolyn was glad that Bob was finally taking a stand with her against Tom. From Carolyn's perspective, Tom clearly knew how to pull his father's strings and elicit his support. Tom had done it time after time since he was a young child but she wouldn't be at peace until Tom was gone for good. That morning, I did my usual routine of getting up around mid-morning, smoking a joint, then a cigarette, then taking a shower, and smoking some more weed after I took my shower. It seemed that was the only way I could function in or out of the house. And if it wasn't weed, then it was whatever I could get my hands on to numb the real world and the problems in it. 
The night before, I had picked up a couple hits of acid, white bladder I think it was, for $10. I was going to start the day with an acid trip because I had the feeling that it was going to be my last day anyway. I didn't care about anything, and I wanted to be dead anyway. I seemed to not be able to do anything right anymore. Every morning from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m., Carolyn volunteered as assistant to the school librarian. On the morning of the day she died, she was running late and was distressed about the situation with Tom. The school librarian was aware that Carolyn was an avid bowler and actively involved in the local bowling league. Carolyn rarely discussed her personal affairs or disclosed her feelings about Tom or her other children, but it was well known that she loved bowling and was apparently very good at it. Bowling was the fulcrum of her social life. She was an officer in the bowling league and typically bowled two or three evenings per week. To those who knew about her socially isolated and oppressive upbringing, bowling represented the conduit to a social life that she had always desired. Given her fondness for bowling and her commitment to the school library, she was allowed to hold bowling league meetings in the library. She had scheduled one such meeting that morning, and despite her concerns regarding Tom, she held the meeting because she took such responsibilities very seriously. After a brief meeting, she was off to run her morning errands and planned to return home before Bob left for work. The PTO also held its meetings in the school library, and as president of the PTO, Carolyn was in even more frequent contact with the library staff. She had a creative, artistic flair and was asked to design the library bulletin boards. Initially, her designs were elaborate patterns with bright, colorful images and cheerful messages. However, as the tension between Carolyn and Tom mounted and the turmoil within the Odal household increased, the bulletin boards grew darker and gloomier. Despite encouragement from the library staff to produce big, flashy, colorful designs that would catch the eye and grab the attention of their students, her designs began to reflect her darkening mood, emotional distress, and preoccupation with her son, Tom. And as a result of the heightened stress she experienced during the last few days of her life, she informed the school personnel that she had developed hives. When I went into the kitchen that morning, my father was sitting at the table still eating his breakfast. So I walked to the sink, and there was this voice in my head telling me to get the knife that was on the wall. The voice was not a strange voice. It was my voice, and it had an angry tone. So I got the knife and put it in my pants so my father wouldn't see it as I went back to my room. But I never went to my room. I stopped in the hall closet and sat there wondering why I'd grabbed this knife because it was crazy to think I was going to do anything with it. It was like having an argument with myself about what to do with this knife. So I ended up carving on my forearm while this argument was going on in my head. Finally, I just got up to put the knife back in the rack and leave to go find some more weed or acid or something. But on the way to where the knife was to be placed, my father got up and stood there in my way, preventing me from getting to the rack without him seeing me with the knife. So I turned the corner and went into the living room and tried to put the knife behind the couch to hide it, thinking that I would put it up later when my father wasn't looking. But my voice was yelling and screaming in my head to do it the whole time I was trying to hide the knife. It would not shut up. Then, the next thing I remember, I'm standing there, and there's blood everywhere, 
flowing out of my father's neck. I froze because I could not believe it was really happening. The voice in my head that had been screaming to do it was finally quiet. But I was frozen and scared because I didn't know if this was real. I was frozen until my father walked to the phone and said that we needed to call for help. But I just took the phone away because I was scared and in shock. I couldn't think of what to do or say. I just remember looking at him and him looking at me and he told me that he loved me. But that did not help as my father had never told me that all my life. I was still trying to figure out if this was real or not. So I walked up to him, but not very close, and looked at all the blood everywhere. When I turned my back to him to look out the window for some reason, he slid out of the chair and onto the floor. I knew then he was gone. So I grabbed his feet and drug him into the master bathroom. At that point, it clicked that I had to clean up the kitchen because of the mess. One can only imagine how Carolyn felt while driving home during the final minutes of her life. She probably wondered if Tom would ever amount to anything. He was lazy and disrespectful. She knew he took drugs, and he was a liar. She was so disappointed in her son. But she and Bob had given Tom all the chances they were going to give him. Now, she was done. They were throwing him out of the house to force him to make it on his own. She knew he had the ability to be self-sufficient. If he would just try, he'd be okay. She wasn't looking forward to these last few hours with Tom in the house. Thank God Bob was there. She did not want to be alone with Tom. My mom was supposed to be home at 11.30, and there was this blood all over the floor, and I thought, oh man, it's going to be wild. So I hurried it up and tried to clean it up. Well, I got most of it. I got it cleaned up off the floor with a mop, and then put some 409 on it. There were no thoughts going through my mind when I was cleaning up the mess. It was just weird. It was as if I was being controlled by something, until my mother pulled up. Then my voice, that was yelling at me earlier to do it, was back telling me that we have to finish it all now that it has started. So I just went along with it. At approximately 10.30 a.m., Carolyn pulled into the driveway of her home at 10.05 South 23rd Street. She may have sat in the car, thinking about the path her life had taken. She and Bob had weathered family storms before. They had split up but then remarried, and their relationship was stronger than ever. Today, they would have to be strong and stand united in order to get Tom out of the house. She would not allow Bob to buckle under pressure from Tom and let him stay. She stepped out of the car, walked to the back of the house, and reached for the door. I hid behind the back door where she comes in, and when she came in, just as she looked at me, I stabbed her in the neck. She ran to the living room and I attacked her all the way. Then she got away from me and threw her keys at me. She asked me if I was trying to kill her and I told her, yep. Then she fell right there in front of the master bedroom door and I just dragged her into the bedroom. I said, 
look at dad, and then she just fell down. I dragged her over and laid her at the foot of the bed. I went through her purse for some cash and I grabbed her car keys, but before I left I saw all the blood all over the furniture so I had to clean it up. I cleaned it up, then I noticed that I had blood all over me. So I washed up real quick, changed my clothes, and put them in the washing machine. According to Tom's confession the day after the murders, he was wearing jeans, a black ACDC t-shirt, and Nike tennis shoes when he murdered his parents. He washed and dried the jeans because he thought he would wear them later. He put on camouflage pants and a blue t-shirt that read, Charging Charlie, before he left the house. And off I went to pick up my friend Larry and his girlfriend Kim. I usually went to the high school by lunchtime to see the girl I was dating at the time, Teresa. I was in my father's car. I used to drive it before I had gotten my own car. But I had sold my car, and I had no insurance. And I wasn't allowed to drive any of my parents' cars for that reason. So I had my father's car and picked up my friends. Off to the high school we went to meet Teresa and just drive around the school, be seen, and all that stuff that young people do. I bought some weed there. I think it was a quarter ounce. Since Kim was pregnant, she didn't smoke weed. But Larry and I were smoking, and Teresa a little bit. She was never fond of my drug habits. I suppose she tolerated them, since she stayed with me. After we cruised around for a while, I took Larry and Kim back to Kim's house, and then I took Teresa back to school. We made some plans to spend the night in a motel. We had been talking about it for some time. We had been talking about it for some time, but just never really got it planned out. I was still not sure what was going on at home. It was like it was real, but it was like I was looking through someone else's eyes because it didn't seem like me or feel like me. It was as if I became someone else whenever I got home. I don't know how else to explain it. There was no formulation of a plan or even an idea as to how to do it or what to use or what to do afterwards. It just happened. Everything was on the spur of the moment and the decisions were made then and there as it was unfolding. There were no, if this happens, then that happens. I didn't think about punishment alternatives should I get caught. Those thoughts did not cross my mind. I just felt like I was living through someone else's eyes, and something else was guiding me through the day because it did not seem real to me at all. <laughs> 